friends, welcome to Camp Kaiju, where we break down a different monster movie each episode. We're talking the good, the bad, and the downright campy. Kaiju are fun, and all strange beasts are welcome here. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Lespleen Levine. Camp Kaiju is brought to you by BanditsEmporium.com, your favorite shop for unique t-shirt merchandise and the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. Long sleeves, short sleeves, red shirts, blue shirts, soft shirts. Oh, you know you love their shirts. Well, now you can use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for a 10% discount. Go to BanditsEmporium.com or hit the link in our bio. Hey, whatever your style, BanditsEmporium.com has you covered, as they say. We sell shirts. And tonight we will be talking about a 2010 independent horror monster film called Rubber, which is about a killer tire that runs amok in the desert, blowing people's heads off. Oop, spoiler alerts will be in this episode. So uh, first and foremost, just thank you everybody for your support, for listening and for engaging and connecting with us on Instagram, on YouTube, uh, on TikTok. It's really great to, to just know that somebody's listening and watching. So uh, truly, thank you. There's somebody out there. I know, in the void, in the abyss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good to know. Uh, how are you, Matt? I'm doing pretty well. It's a good, like, hot week here in the Twin Cities. Um you know, watching some good movies, excited about some stuff uh, coming out, have some good artistic projects going on. So can't complain. Yeah. You know what I did today? What's that? I Googled you and your new novel coming out. Oh, geez. Thank you. I'm on it. I, I, I had to read the synopsis for myself <laughs> because when I asked you about it, you were very vague. it's something that i've been working on trying to get my pitch down a little bit better but um yeah thank you for bringing that up hollow comes out next week next tuesday june 21st i'm very excited about it it's sort of even a monster book so there's a tie in there but there's like a cult aspect is that right there yeah there i would say it's kind of a satanic cult but it's also you know people in a small town in northern wisconsin a very eerie environment who are sort of sort of a thrown into desperate circumstances and do the best that they can essentially and Um, there's a detective in it yes there's a he's a he's not exactly a detective he's a patrol officer in milwaukee with a tarnished reputation sent on well he's not sent up north but he's placed on mandatory suspension he goes up north and he sort of stumbles into this like strange hellish world where all of his inner demons come out Um, uh yep i'm sold honestly not just (laughs) Not just selling your book on our show, but (laughs) that's right up my alley. Thank you. That's good to hear. Um, Thanks for thanks again for bringing it up. I'm very excited about it. Um, But what do you have going on, Vincent? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Since we're speaking about our own projects, um, my Frankenstein play is being cast probably as we speak. They just held auditions for it in the suburbs of Chicago, but it plays in October. So that's been a nice project to have going on. Yeah, that's awesome. Especially like after COVID, I know we're, you know, it's still, we are still in COVID, but sort of like when things are opening up again to have like artistic projects and like audiences and like things going on, it's a very good feeling. So uh, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about the play. Yeah, 
Likewise. We're writers, man. That's awesome. Yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> we have credentials to, to <laughs> dissect and analyze monster movies. <laughs> we would like to believe so, yes. <laughs> right. Uh, next month, speaking of, I don't want to give anything away yet to people listening or watching, but uh, at the stick around to the end of this episode to hear about what we have coming up in July, we are dubbing it Kai July. Got some fun things in the hopper there. Also coming up this month, in addition to more killer car movies, we will be featuring a special bonus feature length episode about the new Jurassic World movie that has just come out. I've been like kind of looking at uh, reviews and just kind of trying to see what the word on the street is. I, I, I my, my expectations are low, to say the least, <laughs> but but maybe in like the best way possible. Yeah, we'll see. I, I agree with that. I'm excited to talk about it. I think like we've we've had a string of really good movies on here recently, which is great. Of course, I love talking about good movies, but to <laughs> talk about a bad movie would be kind of a nice change of pace, you know? Yeah. And a new movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm see excited, if it stands yeah. the test of time. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll have to do some prognostication on that one. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, everyone out there, um, stay tuned for some some really exciting stuff coming up and what do you know rubber is our 50th episode on camp kaiju so a lot to celebrate here thanks for sticking with us before we get into the plot synopsis matt what is what is your personal history with rubber uh i was aware of this movie before uh before we watched it for this episode i had never seen it before um but you know even when it came out about 12 years ago I was familiar with it to a certain extent, like it played at film festivals that has a very bizarre sort of absurd concept, which we'll obviously get into. Um, but I had never seen it before. I kind of just heard that it was sort of like kind of a gimmick movie, but but it really, you know, according to some people that I really trust, a very good one. So I was I've always been intrigued to see it. Yeah, I'm the same way. It came out in 2010. I was in college, freshman and I was immediately taken by the concept of a killer tire. So all these years later, I finally had a good, perfect excuse to watch it. And uh, I'll just say it wasn't exactly what I expected. And there's a lot, I think, to talk about good and bad with this film. Yeah, totally agree. It goes in unexpected directions. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, no spoilers at this point. So we'll get more into that. But but this uh, the director, Quentin Dupuis, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, um, I think so. It's as close as we're going to get. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. For any French listeners out there, that is not my my forte. But um, hey, French word. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but no, I've, I've always wanted to see more of Quentin, Quentin Dupuis movies. He like has a lot of very absurd sort of semi-surreal ideas i know his most recent movie from 2020 mandibles is kind of about a giant fly so mm -hmm. that's familiar territory to things that we've talked about on camp kaiju before yeah um so yeah i mean i i even though i haven't seen any of his movies aside from rubber it definitely seems like absurdism is like the name of the game for him which i fully admire yes um yeah we'll get into it let's let's get to the synopsis so the film starts with a sheriff named chad and he he begins the movie with just a monologue to the camera pointing out that there are many moments in cinema that happen for quote no reason and that life is full of this no reason and that this film is an homage to no reason 
Chad is sometimes participating in the narrative action and sometimes commenting on it throughout the film. Uh, and in the beginning, a group of people then gather in a California desert to watch uh, a quote unquote film. And there's an accountant character who shows up on a bicycle. He passes out binoculars to the audience, uh, these people who have gathered, and then he rides off. And then the audience now starts to look through their binoculars into the distance, waiting for their film to start. So the film that they're watching, essentially, somewhere in the desert, um, these spectators see a tire named Robert suddenly come to life. After standing upright, uh, Robert the tire discovers he has psychokinesis and tests his newfound powers by making animals and inanimate objects explode. Uh, There's this great segment where he sort of like finds his legs a little bit like a newborn animal or something. And then he's testing out his powers in like a beer bottle, um, a plastic bottle, just a bush, and then some unfortunate animals that get in his way. So um, after he kind of, you know, figures out how to how to move on his own, he spots a woman drive by and attempts to use his powers on her. But he only succeeds in making her car stall before he is run over by a truck. The woman manages to start her car and drive off while Robert kills the truck driver that ran him over, the first human exploding head in the movie. Robert then locates the woman at a nearby motel and enters the room next to hers. He kills the motel maid after she finds the tire, finds him, and throws him out of the room. He, just everyone out there, is the pronoun used by the other characters in the film to refer to this tire. So... Uh, Anyways, Sheriff Chad then arrives at the scene to investigate the string of murders. Uh, Meanwhile, the in-film audience, having starved for two days, are given a turkey by the accountant, but then they begin to suffer intense abdominal pain. Then, So now we're back to the motel. Chad is questioning the motel owner, uh, and then Chad suddenly stops upon hearing an alarm go off, indicating that the audience have started to succumb to the poison-laced turkey. So If you're following along, Chad is in on the the poisoning of the audience. Uh, Chad then urges the other characters to go home, telling them the film is over as the audience is dead now. But the accountant informs him that the audience member who uses a wheelchair, there's one who uh, did not eat the turkey and he's still alive. So now Chad, he's a little embarrassed. And so he has no other choice but to resume his investigation and witnesses then Robert the tire kill the motel owner and then chad leads his squad of cops on a tire hunt and then the accountant uh, himself attempts to poison the wheelchair using audience member but he becomes hungry and eats the poison food and dies uh so then robert excuse me comes across a group of people burning a large pile of tires resulting in him going on a killing spree for three days Chad lures the tire into a trap using dynamite on a mannequin dressed as the woman, uh, who I believe is only known as female motorist, at least according to the credits. We never learn her name. (laughs) Uh, Robert blows up the mannequin's head, but the dynamite fails to detonate. The man who uses a wheelchair mocks the sheriff for the botched trap, enraging Chad enough to destroy Robert with a shotgun off screen and tossing the tire's carcass at the man, who continues to criticize him for the anticlimax. Robert is then reincarnated as a tricycle and kills the man in the wheelchair before recruiting an army of tricycles on his way to Hollywood. The end. (laughs) (laughs) If that was a little hard to follow at times, 
that was that's the point. Um, the film stars a few main actors. It's a large ensemble cast, but a few main actors. Steven Spinella as the sheriff, Chad. Roxanne Mesquita as the woman in the car. Wings Hauser as man in wheelchair. And Jack Plotnick as the accountant. It was co-written, edited, cinematography by, and co-composed by Quentin Depew. Yeah, so jack of all trades. Honestly, I mean, not bad at at what he does. I mean, he, I think he knew what he was doing. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, there are things that I didn't like about it, and obviously, we'll get into more of that later. But extremely proficient, like definitely on a limited budget, he's able to shoot very well. The editing is very perfectly kind of composed to like build up the sense of like bizarreness and the sense of like absurdity you know um the the music is a little bit like too droney for my tastes but it's very effective for like Hmm. what the movie's trying to do so yeah it's all really well done do you know that quentin depew is also an electronic musician indeed and i i believe he is actually mr oizo who is credited in this film so that's actually his credit yeah and, you know, I just wanted to add that Steven Spinella, I did not recognize him, but he's had a career for quite a while. He's been in movies like Virtuosity, Ravenous, uh, Bubble Boy, which is not a very good movie, but, uh, you know, oh. it is well known. So he's yeah. been around for a while. And I just think it's kind of cool that he um, shows up in this very strange movie, which seems to be like kind of an anomaly in his career, you know? Yeah, he definitely uh, had one of those faces that I was like, oh, I, he looks vaguely familiar. It must be Bubble Boy I was thinking of. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A movie which is equally nonsensical as this one, perhaps. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So clearly Quentin Dupieux has a bit of a reputation for surreal comedic films. The producer of the film agreed to produce the film if Quentin were to film it in the United States and in English. For better or for worse, it did help the... The appeal, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. At least to American audiences, of course. Yeah. yeah. Much wider release. The film was shot in 14 days on a budget of $100,000, which I just love that because our previous film, Duel, was also shot on a similar time frame and budget. Yeah. Proof that you don't need all the resources in the world to craft like an exciting, weird, unique movie, you know? Absolutely. I think it's also fun to compare and contrast the advances in technology and like filmmaking tech. And I mean, the camera, the, the cinematography is so starkly different. I mean, I'm sure Depew was using a digital camera. It looks very mm-hmm. digital to me. Yeah, he was using, I wish I remembered, I think it was like a Canon SLR, which is actually like a still camera, but you can take video with it as well. Mm. Um, and it, You know, my personal tastes have me like I always prefer sort of like the 16 millimeter grainy sort of like tactile feel. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's one way that I think dual kind of has a a leg up over rubber. They're very different movies, obviously. So it's probably (laughs) kind of unfair to compare them. But um, but yeah, you're totally right. I mean, like film technique and film form has changed so much. And the fact that you can kind of buy a a camera for, you know, I, w- I would say maybe like a couple hundred dollars. This The camera that he used probably is not more than like seven or eight hundred. And yeah. and shoot this movie with it is, uh, you know, it's pretty cool. It's pretty inspiring for aspiring filmmakers out there. When I was in high school, uh, my group of friends and I, like we would shoot our movies. Like we would shoot movies on the weekends, over the summers. And we, this was like right before every, like the smartphone era. Mm. 
Yeah. So like we like pool our money and we'd buy all this equipment and get like a $400 little handheld camera digital with a flip <laughs> screen with a screen that could rotate very uh, high tech. <laughs> but yeah, but these days only like 15 years later, <laughs> yeah, uh, less than my friends and, our, and I are like, can you imagine the movies we would have made if we had our iPhones then? Yeah. With the quality of camera and the ease, like you could just, you could just edit a movie on your phone. Yeah. I mean, you think of like Tangerine or Unsane. Those are like the two, the two movies that come to my mind right away for movies that were shot on an iPhone and, and look really good. Like they, in their own way, they have a distinct um, aesthetic, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, my friends and I did the same thing. Like we borrowed our parents' camcorders and it looks terrible <laughs> when we rewatch them now. Uh, in a way, I'm kind of happy that we had to like, go through the labor of love of like trying to learn the technology and like edit on a VCR. Like we didn't even like use a computer to edit. Wow. That so that, that was in the olden days. Yeah. That now that's impressive. That was <laughs> Yeah. That kind of dates me a little bit, but that was in the nineties that we were doing that. I wouldn't so. even know where to begin with that. <laughs> uh, those were the days, man. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're in our tour over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I pretend like I am. <laughs> So yeah, uh, Depew shot this thing uh, very efficiently considering his limitations. I was reading some interviews with him. He based the, uh, at least the intro to Rubber on the intro of Wally, the sense of following this inanimate object come to life. I thought that was really nice. Yeah, especially because in this case, the sort of like pseudo Wally creature is like, blowing up animals and humans you know like <laughs> yeah. just that uh contradiction is pretty great i think right if wally was a psychokinetic killer <laughs> yeah <laughs> with that said though this was um from a wall street journal interview at the time depew he admitted he grew bored so when he first started writing the screenplay he said he grew bored of just telling the story of a killer tire in his i'm paraphrasing but he was like, I don't want to just make Jaws with a tire. So he grew bored of it. And that's then what resulted in the addition of the audience stand-in in the film and this sort of meta aspect to it. It seems to me he was just trying to shake things up for himself as a creative artist. You, it, you know, I, I to me, and again, we'll get more into this, but like that's where this movie really kind of comes to life a little bit, you know, like... Uh... I think like that meta aspect and like the sort of like, yeah, the sort of uh, it's like dual narrative side by side a little bit. You know, we have the story of like the film within a film audience and then like this ridiculous story of the tire. Um, that's what totally makes the movie. If it was just a movie about a killer tire, it would probably be kind of fun, but like sort of forgettable. Um, so I, I feel like his like creative boredom, like, yeah, like gave rise to like something way better than it might have been in the first place, you know? Uh, this is, I knew talking about rubber with you would be a great conversation <laughs> because I don't feel that way. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying it totally works, but, um, you know, I think if it was just a tire rolling around, like blowing up heads and animals and stuff, like, you know, it's kind of a one joke premise. So I, I, and not that that's a bad thing, but I think like adding the meta aspect kind of, you know, deepens that just a little bit. Yes, absolutely. I actually do agree with that. 
and that's still a, that's still a complaint I have about the film. Mm-hmm. But but we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's some more fun back background stuff? Uh, the film was shown at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010 to really positive reviews. However, uh, maybe speaking to sort of the stark divide that this movie actually does elicit from a lot of people, the film was also shown at a Toronto Film Festival called After Dark Film, and Fangoria Magazine was there and noted that the film, uh, quote, deeply split the audience and the reactions uh, ranged from huge laughs and applause, but also included the only boos heard by Fangoria at the festival. So if you Google rubber, the reactions are across the board, whether it's like private blogs or Rotten Tomatoes, Letterboxd, whatever. It seems like you either love it or you hate it. I love that. That's that's the movie in a nutshell. Yeah, I tend to give a lot of leeway to movies that like uh, are very divisive to people. Yeah, it usually means they're trying to do something sort of interesting or like original, you know, totally true. And and I'm glad because I I don't usually watch such polarizing films but I'm glad that I did. Before we get into themes, uh, I just want to talk to you about banditsemporium.com, the official t-shirt partner of Camp Kaiju. I'm rocking their Frankenstein t-shirt right now. You can visit banditsemporium.com and get 10% off your next purchase by using promo code Camp Kaiju, all one word. And uh, you get a a cool Godzilla t-shirt. You can get the t-shirt with our logo on it. You get a vampire t-shirt and a Frankenstein t-shirt. Long sleeves also available. However, uh, if you live anywhere like Minneapolis, where it's going to be 100 degrees next week, you're going to want the short sleeve uh, shirt. So check them out, send them some love and support them and this podcast at the same time. Thanks, everybody. Themes... I think I think this is the the meat and potatoes of discussing rubber. I feel like this movie is very theme centric. We're going to put on our our literary hats here and talk about absurdism, nihilism, lots of isms. And I don't know, I want to I want to throw it to you, Matt, and uh, see if you if you what what pearls of wisdom can you can you throw at us about some of these (laughs) uh, ideologies? Uh, I don't know if they're pearls of wisdom necessarily, but um, but I would like to me, the ism that came up the most uh, is Dadaism, which is like very closely related to surrealism, but also very different at the same time. I would say if surrealism is kind of getting into like dreams and like the um, the id and the sort of, you know, um, the space inside of your mind, the kind of like inner world of our minds. Um, then, you know, Dada really is about nothing and like proudly so. It's kind of saying that art can be purely formalist, very absurd, and that that in itself is kind of political because it shuns story and theme and like it doesn't pretend to have any kind of like deep message or importance. Like it's not looking for Oscar nominations or anything like that. And that in itself is like totally non mainstream. Yeah, um, that's what the Dadaists would say in the 1920s with artists like Marcel Duchamp and Man Ray. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great silent movie, Entracte, uh, by Rene Claire, another French movie, hmm. um, which, you know, kind of really does seem like a bunch of unrelated images that are just really ridiculous, make no sense at all. And I've always kind of had a fondness for this kind of art where it's like we don't really need to have a story or a theme or even a purpose for existing. And that's kind of like what makes it important, you know, it's also what makes it ultimately maybe a little bit hollow, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think, and again, that's kind of the point of it in a way, you know? 
Yeah, and this film uh, certainly seeks to deconstruct the art of filmmaking that, like you said, it, it doesn't have to mean something to be worthwhile. So as a theater major, I was exposed to theater of the absurd and Dadaism in the theatrical and, you know, theater history. There are, there are a lot of things, definitions that they, they seem very close to each other. Uh, so it's just slightly difficult for me to really read into the nuance of each one. Mm-hmm. Um, I really buy, I buy the Dadaism with this film. I buy the theater of the absurd more than nihilism. Mm. Uh, I was, there was a, a critique from collider.com that really uh, highlighted the nihilistic themes. But see, like nihilism and absurdism both speak to like the sort of like, what's the point of life? That there is no point, there's no standard form or morals. But I think absurdism goes a little bit more into like the, the centers on the individual themselves and their place in the universe. And that fundamentally nothing makes sense. I don't know. It's easier for me to talk about examples like Waiting for Godot by Samuel Mm -hmm. Beckett Mm -hmm. or books by Albert Camus, a Frenchman, uh, (laughs) that in high school, I read The Stranger by Camus and I hated it (laughs) (laughs) because it's like a sequence of events just happened and you had a solid plot halfway through the film and then the plot completely turned up upside down. And I was like, I don't know what I'm reading anymore. Flash forward to a 31-year-old Vincent. I get it now. And I actually really do like Theater of the Absurd because yeah. maybe just because I'm I've lived a bit of life now and I understand that life is ultimately a random thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh which definitely does sound nihilistic, but I think like you know, like Theater of the Absurd and Dada, like I feel like the underlying point is that the art itself is like the the maybe not the meaning of life which sounds very over the top but like the reason to be alive like to make art you know uh and to me that doesn't seem nihilistic that actually seems kind of hopeful you know Uh, like you can make something that is really ridiculous and seemingly uh doesn't have a a meaning or a purpose at all you know like lieutenant chad or whatever sheriff chad says in the beginning of rubber like no reason like none of it has any reason like, I feel like movies like this actually embrace that kind of, which to me seems more hopeful than nihilistic, you know? Which is, I, I feel like I'm not an expert on nihilism at all. I have not done my, my homework on that philosophy, but my connotation, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's wrong or not, is that it's a very pessimistic outlook, but I don't feel that connotation with absurdism. Yeah, totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I read that Collider article as well, and I really like it a lot. Um, the writer is Rosalind Quell, and she writes, uh, Reason has no place in cinematography, much like life itself. Rather, every flick or show is just the imagination and muse of one particular person. Thus, film shouldn't need a reason to exist. Film just is. We need more work without reason, devoid of rationality. In this way, viewers will be able to simply experience and enjoy the ludicrousness of nothingness. Um, which I, I feel like that's a pretty good encapsulation of this movie. And it is pretty enjoyable, even though it's very like, it, it can be repetitive and maybe wears out its welcome a little bit, but it is kind of like still a thrill for the most part, you know? That's what like, I, I did enjoy so much of this film, but there were moments that really wore thin with me um, yeah. in terms of sort of the one trick aspect. And I, and I guess Depew was just limited by his budget, but I would have loved to have seen the tire 
kill in more ways than just blowing up heads. Yeah. I would have loved the, just one guy talking here. I would have loved the tire to, for the violence to escalate gradually. And like yeah. by the end, the tires just blowing up a whole city, which does happen off screen. Yeah. Which was really a bit of a letdown. Totally agree. And that would have been quite a movie to see all that happen, like in real time, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like that's like what the movie is leading towards at the end when we see this like army of tricycles, like go to Hollywood. We see the Hollywood sign yeah. in the background, um, which, I, you know, that enough, that in itself is like reason enough to make this movie in America in English. Like that kind of makes it worth it right there. I think that ending, you know? Yeah. Um, and like the the movie that plays in your head that you imagine of like, these murderous tricycles like overtaking Hollywood. That's a, that's a cool, fun idea. I would love to see that. But of course, you know, like Depew and the filmmakers did not have the budget to make that happen. Like you said, I know, I know. And that's, that's it. I feel like this movie was such a tease for me. I wanted to mention that Collider article again, because I'm really glad we read the same thing. Mm -hmm. I liked a lot of what she was saying. I would just, a lot of things weren't jibing with me. Uh, she's, she talked about Dali and how his paintings like seemingly make no sense. And I think that, I think this is just a great, um, open-ended question about art. Even if you're making quote unquote, meaningless art, the fact that you have an audience, an audience will inherently give it meaning. They will read into it, whatever they want. So like Dali, you know, the persistence of memory with the melting clocks, I think that's full of meaning and symbolism and you know what I mean it's not just nothing yeah absolutely I totally agree with that and that yeah I would this to me is like the difference between surrealism and Dadaism where Dali actually was a surrealist and I feel like this movie is more Dadaist you know like Mm. I yeah I mean I like her review a lot but I actually don't really agree with that comparison because you're totally right that Dali and surrealism in general is like loaded with metaphor and symbolism and you can read so much into it um, but rubber, I think like with the kind of like meta story of like the film within the film audience, like watching this, like all play out and mm-hmm. like, you know, they all die off. And then, um, the story is like kind of forced to continue when they realize that one audience member is still alive. Yeah. Like all, all of that is kind of just emphasizing, like, you, you know, like it's, I'm glad that you brought up the role of the audience. Cause this movie is sort of like, um, underlying the absurdity of even the audience's response you know yeah and like i have a feeling that like if depew was like listening to this right now he would just be like cackling maniacally that we're like pontificating <laughs> about this movie yeah. you know like I, I feel like the entire point of it really is that there's like no point to it you know so it does yeah. feel a little bit maybe like cruel i guess but but i sort of admire that still i respect it and i admire it it's still at times a hard pill to swallow for someone who is I mean, for most people, we are we are given the the Aristotle structure. Mm-hmm. You have three acts. This happens at this moment. You have your your prototypical characters, your archetypes, and and stories are neatly packaged. So then, when you have something that completely messes with your expectations, it can be hard to get on board with. Yeah, I, this movie can only go so far. Like, I definitely admire. It's kind of like. It's like pranksterishness. I don't know if that's a word, (laughs) you know, like I admire that, but it's not like you're ever emotionally affected by this movie and it doesn't like have these sort of great political themes or anything like that. So, so I agree with you. And I don't think that something like this can ever be like 
a great comment on the state of humanity or anything like that but <laughs> but it can be like a fun little stunt you know i think like yeah. that's kind of like what it is at its best yeah and i do like the audience being included as a reflection of of us and and begging the question what is the relationship between audience and art can one exist without the other that's a question that in the theater we talk about all the time like mm. can you do a play without an audience uh, you know i do think that's true of any art form i definitely think that like a work of art comes alive when people interact with it and experience it and talk about it and stuff like that so you know like uh, <laughs> yeah it's kind of um this movie does seem to be implying well i i don't know i mean i i think <laughs> I don't know if the movie really has anything to say about that. It's sort of just saying, like, isn't this a ridiculous scenario where, like, you know, in, in your notes to this movie, and I read this too, DePew was actually inspired by an event where he snuck into a movie theater uh, that was playing one of his own movies called Steak, and there was nobody in the theater. Like, it was just playing to an empty room, basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, I think that event led him to make rubber as a way of saying, like, isn't this a ridiculous exchange where like artists make art for people who might never experience it, you know? Yeah. Oh man. As an artist, it's like, you know, you create things, you put them out there. You assume people read it or watch it or listen to it, but you don't know. Ultimately, it's just kind of like a, a leap of faith almost. It's yeah. It's, it kind of is vulnerable, you know? Um, yeah. And even though rubber, like, you know, just like does not have an ounce of um, emotion or like even maybe sincerity to it. Like, I just wonder if some of like Depew's like um, motivation in making it was that vulnerability a little bit, even though he like really conceals that as much as possible through like, like artifice and like comedy and absurdity, you know? Yeah. Well, that's good stuff. I mean, we could talk about form and aesthetic. We can move on if you want. I, I mean, I feel like we're we're sort of going in circles, which is <laughs> yeah. very absurd of us. <laughs> like a rubber tire almost yeah. no that's meaning there's no meaning <laughs> <laughs> i take it back you're right <laughs> no but what i was gonna say was when this movie first started nah i'll save it for my bad never mind okay um i was captivated by the journey of this tire from birth to figuring out what an insect is or a scorpion like discovering the world and i was totally on board yeah, I loved it. Agreed. The opening is fantastic. And like the despite my sort of like personal subjective opinion about the cinematography, like it is very tactile. And I feel like you like you can almost like reach out and like feel the rubber tread on the tire and you can like feel the sand beneath it. You know, yeah. it's a fantastic job of like conveying that environment and shots of the desert. Like the there's a moment like the sunset on the on the valley and the the tumbleweeds i was i was taken with it yeah so was i especially at first um yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. at first <laughs> yeah in a lot of ways the movie wears out its welcome and i feel like the sort of like digital cinematography does start to feel a little bit overly like clean and like neat that's kind of mm. why i prefer film you know i prefer that grain and like that uh you know like just the way like light is shot on film looks totally different than than digitally so little yeah. things like that but i do agree that the cinematography is very well done and i love the sort of like sensory aspect of it yeah and you use the word neat that made me think about the special effects in this film first couple times things explode it's awesome i loved it but then like as the movie wore on the explosions at least with a lot of the heads are done digitally it looked mm -hmm. like and that just looked clean it just looked like 
a digital effect rather than a, a practical effect. Yeah, and you're totally right. I actually read that he tried to do practical effects on set while they were shooting the movie and he wasn't very happy with the way it looked. So then they mm. did do it digitally in post-production. And yeah, like it, it is a little bit disappointing. You want it to be like, maybe this sounds kind of crude, but you want it to be like gorier and grosser yeah. and like, you know, more, like more visceral. Yeah. And I think also it just happens too often. Like within, you know, like I, I do love the moments where the tire is like first waking up and and experiencing the world. And then like within the first couple minutes, it's blowing up a rabbit. And then like pretty much right after that, it blows up a human being. And then that yeah. happens pretty frequently throughout the movie. So yeah. <laughs> it's it, like by the like fourth or fifth time that happens, you're like, okay, I've seen this before, you know? Right. It, it, the tread wore thin. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, I don't really have anything uh, profound to say about the music or editing or any other technical aspects, uh, unless you did. No, I, I don't really, <laughs> uh, you know, like I, th- I think it's a, like a well-made movie, but like kind of going back to our conversation before, like with something like this, it can never really be like mind blowing, I think, you know? Yeah. Just head blowing. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't even intentional. Wow. Puns aplenty tonight. So yeah, the good, like, I just love the absurdity of it. I, I think this is a totally unique movie. I think like it is refreshing to see something that like doesn't really care about logic or like an emotional story or like profound themes or anything like that. I'll probably say this, the inverse of that when we get to the bad portion, but like, (laughs) I I do admire the uniqueness of it. You know, I think it has a great sense of humor. Like uh, I really love the scene, which you alluded to before in the plot synopsis, when the kind of um, like nebbishy accountant character, like delivers the poisoned food to the guy in the wheelchair. (laughs) And then he ends up eating it himself, which is totally ridiculous. And he eats a lot of it. Yeah. What is happening? <laughs> it's it's a really good absurd joke. I found that really funny. So yeah, really funny movie, very unique. Um, and I admire like what it's trying to do, basically. I hear you. I love again, I love the beginning. I love the beginning even more specifically because the tire is given a personality, it develops very humanizing traits. Like at one point it approaches a puddle of water, and, and you can tell it's the first time this this creature has seen water and it doesn't know what to do with it. And then it makes the decision to just jump in because it's thirsty, right? <laughs> uh, I loved moments like that. I wish the film continued in that vein, but nope, I'm on the good, on the good. Uh, there's a moment, did you notice the first victim of the tire? He's making a phone call in a phone booth. Mm-hmm. And it's, to me, it's framed just like in Duel when Ooh. David Mann is in the phone booth. Because then like behind him in the background comes rolling the tire, which I believe is the exact same shot from Duel with the, the truck coming through the camera frame. What a, yeah, the fantastic point. Absolutely. And like, you know, with this movie being made in 2010, like phone booths were, I don't, if there were any that were still like functioning in the United States, there were probably a few and far between, you know? So it is kind of like an anachronism and maybe it is calling back to that sort yeah. of like, yeah um 70s world i'll have to i'll have to look up those two shots from each respective movie and compare them because i i bet it's it's an homage to duel which is great like didn't yeah. expect that <laughs> that's a great point yeah um the bad uh well you know i mean uh, like yeah i i admire it but at the same time again something like this can only go so far like i do you you said it perfectly when you were talking about the 
you know, Aristotelian, Aristotelian, like sort of function of art, form of art to like um, connect to the human experience. Like, I do agree that that's ultimately like, that's what I want to get out of art that I either create or experience, you know? So, so with something like this, I'm like, all right, I love the, the uniqueness of it. I love that it's like non-mainstream, but it can never really affect you all that much. Like you always sort of like know that it's sort of just like a, a joke and there's probably not all mm. that much like substance to it, you know? Yeah, the the conceit of this film could have still worked. I just felt like by the third act of the film, when they start like chasing the tire and the whole concoction with the mannequin, mm-hmm. at that point, I got the sense that even Depew was sort of mm-hmm. grasping at straws himself, like a strong absurdist concept. I feel like still should have continued to the end. But, but it got a, t- a little too messy and un, uh, too loose in its construction for me. I totally agree with that. I think especially when um, the sheriff is in the back of that van with the, the motorist, the woman, and like they're, you know, they, they set up like that, that mannequin, like you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, where did this come from? How did they even meet? How did this plan come about? I know that's asking for like too much logic from a movie like this. But yeah, at the same time, I think like, you know, the the point that none of it is supposed to make sense also like is an excuse to not like <laughs> craft a very like um, precise story, you know? So that element of it is missing for sure. Yeah, maybe there could have been a, be- a better, maybe a little bit more traditional, conventional filmmaking thrown in. Storytelling, I should say, not filmmaking. Yeah, or, or even like in the opposite direction of even more r- ridiculous, which I think we see yeah. at, the, at the very end with the tricycles sort of storming Hollywood. Yeah. Um, you know, that movie was was not to be. But like, I, it would have been cool if, if Rubber had gone more in that direction, you know? I think that's it. I think it played a middle ground and just yeah. lost the the impact it could have had either way yeah totally ah okay that was awesome uh downright campy i have one moment i mean there were a lot of moments where i legitimately laughed like i was really digging this movie when the when the tire this very anthropomorphized tire is sitting in an armchair watching nascar or formula (laughs) one or whatever yeah like the tire doesn't have a face and yet I could see it. I could see it diligently watching this television. This is hilarious. <laughs> That's a great joke. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think also the part where the, the tire comes across like the big tire fire. Um, yeah. Maybe not campy per se, but like, you know, like a good dark joke. Like it's almost yeah. like if, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't a tire, then it would be pretty like shocking and depressing to see that, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was a great moment of of emotional uh heft i felt like yeah yeah maybe like its origin story or something even though it had already killed numerous things before that but (laughs) yeah i you know i think the scene where like the like sheriff chad uh like the alarm goes off that the characters were poisoned like the audience members Mm -hmm. um and then he says that it's all a joke and like the there's another cop who's like what are you talking about like this person's head just got exploded <laughs> clearly it's not like a joke or like a movie like this is actually happening and suddenly he's ho- he's holding like a stuffed alligator under yes. his arm yeah that's that's a funny joke too that's like definitely the kind of like absurd ridiculous humor that this movie's going for that whole scene that i think is like intentional camp that's really well done i would say agreed and comedy is hard too. like we're talking about standing the test of time. We haven't talked about any like outright comedies yet, mm-hmm. but comedy is subjective. And sometimes you either like it or you don't. 
to me it's always seemed like the hardest genre like i mean if you fail at comedy it's just a complete disaster and nobody laughs you know so um right i would like this this kind of is up my comedic alley so i thought it was pretty successful at that but yeah but again that can only go so far so you want to give it a rating yeah i'm ready if you are i'm ready so here on camp kaiju monster movie talk we have four ratings is it a timeless classic does it definitely stand the test of time or are there some antiquated moments? You know, it doesn't always hold up, but overall it's great and it stands the test of time. Or, it, okay, it may be historically significant. It may be a lot of fun, but it doesn't really hold up and it doesn't stand the test of time. Or finally, it's not worth revisiting at all. It definitely does not stand the test of time. My estimation of rubber is that it has a lot of fun moments. <laughs> But for me, it just can't overcome its own. It can't overcome its own conceit and its own sort of sandbox. And and I don't I don't think it stands the test of time. Mm, okay. So the lowest ranking is where you're giving it, right? No, no, no. Second to lowest. Okay. So okay. It may be historically significant or just fun. Gotcha. I definitely think this is fun, but as a whole package, where's a little thin? Cool. I, I was just clarifying. Yeah. 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 Um, I have the same exact verdict. You know, I think it is fun. I think it's maybe not significant, but it is unique. And I admire that it's trying to do something that like the majority of movies are not trying to do. Um, but that is also what limits it. It's not an emotional experience. It's not a well-told story. It's not even really like an aesthetic, like masterpiece or anything like that. <laughs> um, although it is, you know, it's well done, but like not much more than that, I would say. Uh, so yeah, like, I think it should be seen. I think like, I'm glad it exists, but, uh, I don't think it really excels too much more than that, in my opinion. All right. There it is, folks. Rubber 2010 directed by Quinta Dupieux. We have given our verdict on this killer car. It's really just part of a car, but I think it counts. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, a dismembered body part of the car that comes alive and goes on a rampage. And, you know, why limit ourselves to the, the rules of this, of this box <laughs> we created? Yeah, as, as Rubber has taught us, it does not have to make sense. So uh, on that note, the moment maybe you've all been waiting for, patiently, thank you. Uh, in, in July, Kai July, Matt and I have some big news. We are going to G-Fest. It is the world's, I don't know if it's the world's largest, but it's a very significant Godzilla Kaiju convention in Chicago in July. We're excited for a live event. We're going to do a live show. We're going to talk to people, just really nerd out about Kaiju. Uh, so if you're going to be in the area, come check us out at G-Fest. In line with G-Fest, Matt and I will be featuring 50s and 60s classic Kaiju Japanese monster movies on Camp Kaiju. So definitely stick around for that. Yeah, we're getting back some classics a little bit. And I, I just wanted to say the dates for G-Fest, I believe it's July 15th through, through 17th. So I just wanted to, to throw that out there. Yes, and we will be there on the Saturday. July 16th, yeah, it's going to be fun. Oh my God. July. So, yeah, I, I have no idea what to expect. There's going to be some mayhem, I'm sure, some monsters, some beasts. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> so thank you again, everybody. Until next time. Stay campy. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like what you hear, please follow, rate, and review this podcast and follow us on Instagram for more Monster Movie Talk. I'm Vincent Hannum with Matt Levine, music by Terrence Jackson. And until next time, stay campy.
Oh, and don't forget to visit banditsemporium.com or hit the link in our bio to shop Camp Kaiju t-shirts. Banditsemporium.com is our official t-shirt partner, so show them some love while you're at it. You're in good sleeves. Uh, arms. Either way, just use promo code CAMPKAIJU at checkout for that 10% discount. And whatever your style, banditsemporium.com has you covered. As they say, we sell shirts. In the Steven Spielberg movie, E.T., why is the alien brown? No reason. I could go on for hours with more examples. The list is endless. You probably never gave it a thought. But all great films without exception, contain an important element of no reason. And you know why? Because life itself is filled with no reason.